Good evening. I'm Joseph Francisco, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and I want to welcome you to the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. For more than a quarter century, the University and the Cooper Foundation have partnered with the LEED Center for Performing Arts to bring a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to the university and the people of Nebraska in order to promote understanding and encourage debate. Tonight, I would like to acknowledge and thank the Department of Communication Studies and the Center for Civic Engagement for their generous financial and logistics report. Special thanks to the leadership of Don Braithway, Aaron Duncan, Carly Woods, and Linda Major. Tonight, we will witness an educational and entertaining exchange. It should be exciting. This lecture series honors the late Ian Jack Thompson, who was a longtime president and chair of the Cooper Foundation, and individuals are supportive of the work of Jack. We are grateful to the Cooper Foundation, which founded the forum, for its ongoing contributions, and to Jack and his wife, Katie, for creating a fund supporting this forum. Speakers this year are addressing the theme, Creative World, which explores creativity impact on people and societies, and examines the question of how creativity can change our culture and planet for the better. Our next forum will feature world-renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma for his lecture, Cultural Citizens, on December the 5th. Our debaters tonight are known for their wit, humor, and eloquence. Members of the United Kingdom's English-speaking union toured the United States each year debating the best and the brightest at our institutions of higher learning. The list of tour alumni is impressive. They include a British Prime Minister, a leader of opposition, an Archbishop of Canterbury, and many senior politicians, journalists, and business people. The tour is coordinated by the National Communication Association's Committee on International Discussion and Debate. Tonight's British debaters are Kate Brooks and Alice Coombs Huntley. Ms. Brooks is a postgraduate student at the University of Oxford and is a consultant researcher for the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia. She is head of competitive baiting at the Oxford Union. Ms. Coombs Huntley is a recent University of Bristol graduate who has won three national championships. They will be facing off against UNL debaters, Adam Blood and Jonathan Carter, both doctoral students in communication studies. Mr. Blood, a native of Joplin, Missouri, is a coach for the UNL debate team. Mr. Carter, originally from Denver, is in his 10th year coaching speech and debate. The debate will be moderated by Aaron Duncan, director of UNL's speech and debate team. 
After the debate, you will have the opportunity to ask questions. Please write them on the cards and submit your, or submit your questions online through Twitter using the hashtag Ian Thompson Forum. The British and UNL debaters have agreed to take photographs and also chat with you in the lobby following this event. The topic of tonight's debate is, are social media a threat to human creativity? Please join me in welcoming the British national debate team and UNL speech and debate team. Thank you to Dean Francisco for that warm introduction. Uh, a brief round of thank yous to the Ian Thompson Forum Series, to the LEAD Center, for the Center for Civic Engagement, and the Department of Communication Studies for their hard work in making this event possible. As Dean Francisco said, today we are to hear the following question. Are social media a threat to human creativity? Affirming the resolution will be the pride of all Nebraska arguing that, in fact, we are, threatening so, we are threatening human creativity with our addiction to social media. On the opposition side, the members of Her Majesty's Secret Debating Service, <laughs> the national team of Great Britain. Uh, now, if I could ask uh, one favor, although this is a debate about social media, we would prefer that you not be on social media if you are in tonight's live audience. So if we could please turn off all cell phones uh, and all other alarms, that would be wonderful. If you're watching at home or on the live stream, please feel free to tweet along with the debates. The format of the debate is a parliamentary-style debate modeled after our friends from the UK. Although I must say I'm a little disappointed they did not bring their black robes or white powdered wigs. <laughs> Nonetheless, we will press on. The speech will begin with an eight-minute constructive speech from the affirmative, in this case, Adam, followed by an eight-minute speech from Alice, opposing the resolution, an eight-minute speech from John, responding, and an eight-minute speech from Kate. At this point, we'll move to the final rebuttal speeches. Adam will give a five-minute rebuttal speech, and then our last speaker will be Alice, also giving a five-minute rebuttal. At that point, we will take questions and answers, and we will vote on the conclusion of the debate. I want to thank everybody for their attendance tonight, uh, and I would like to urge you, as members of the audience, to participate in the debate. One of the unique things about parliamentary debate is that the audience is not simply passive observers, but we want you to be active participants. So if a member of either the, the affirmative or, if they do, the negative team make a good point, uh, which I'm sure they will. I'm sure there will be many ones. Please show that by pounding on your table or you're stomping your foot. And should one of our debaters say something that you can simply not stand for, feel free in the British tradition to give them a little hiss or even a boo. That way the speakers will know just how the debate is going and be able to interact with you. Thank you for coming out tonight. We have a wonderful audience, it appears, and I'm looking forward to tonight's debate. And with that, I will turn it over to the affirmative team and to Adam to give our first eight-minute constructive speech.
Well, I would like to begin by thanking all of you for coming out to support this event tonight. It means a whole lot to us for people to come out and see um, an academic debate such as this. I would like to extend thanks to the LEAD Center, to the Ian Thompson Forum, to the Center for Civic Engagement, and of course, the Department of Communication Studies here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And most of all, I would like to thank my partner, John, and of course, our opponents. Um, George Bernard Shaw once said that the Americans and the English are two people divided by a common language, and I am looking forward to get to bridge that divide this evening. Creativity involves breaking out of established norms in order to look at things in a different way. That is a direct quotation from Edward de Bono, the author, physician, and inventor, who originated the term lateral thinking. Wow! That tweet changed the way I look at the world. That is a direct quotation from nobody, <laughs> ever. My partner and I would like to begin the debate with giving you this little glimpse into what social media does. Charles Arthur, citing into a world that's been talked about quite a bit in theory in an article in The Guardian, points out that in online communities, if you get 100 people to gather, one will create content, 10 will interact by sharing or commenting, and the other 89 will simply view it. And we believe that this world puts us in a very difficult situation when it comes to the way we use social media and what it does to creativity, which we would like to define as the use of originality and imagination to develop meaningful, innovative, and novel ideas. How's that for adjectives? We would also like to point out the significance of the term threat. We would like to point out this evening that we are not here to say that creativity is dead and then put social media on trial. Mr. Zuckerberg's lawyers would be rather upset. But what we instead like to say is that a way a lot of people use social media can hinder creativity in a lot of really problematic ways. So we'd like to contend that we lose something meaningful as we shift away from face-to-face -face interactions and start sharing ourselves more in the world of social media. And you can see this through two main ideas. The first is the amount of noise generated in social media. And the second is the passive follower culture that comes from a social media lifestyle. So first, let's look at the idea of noise. Author Richard Foreman commented that we are becoming pancake people, which sounds delicious, but it's kind of a problem. Which is to say that we have become so spread thin by information overload that we may know a few terms and ideas about certain topics, but we never really achieve depth on any one particular thing. This idea is echoed by Mark Bowerlin in his book, The Dumbest Generation, which, sad to say, is referring to most of us. But he says that he points out that younger generations are using social media not really to enlighten themselves, but instead to listen to things that are of similar views as their own. We would contend that most of the content on social media is not creative generation of new ideas, but is instead the kind of attention-seeking behavior where you get celebrities who are already powerful and would already have our attention, living out tabloid lifestyle in a different forum, where they do something and we tweet about it, we put posts on Facebook about it, but we don't get to generate as many new ideas of our own. There's no way to separate the stuff from the fluff in social media. For instance, let's say I was to take my views of the world, my ideas about society and the way we live in, and put it together in an amazing diatribe of less than 140 characters. I would then try to put it out there for all of my followers, in my case, both of them, 
to see what I think about the world and to give me some sort of critical evaluation. But unfortunately, odds are I'm going to be lost in the sea of banality that's created by my cousin's brother's sister's boyfriend talking about the line at the DMV or these people who go to lunch and post pictures of what they ordered. Seriously, we know who you are. Stop it. With this problem, there's no way for us to critically evaluate ideas anymore. If anything, I come up with something and the world just hits like or they ignore me. And I don't hear the kind of critical attention that I need. And this becomes really problematic, especially when we get into our second point. Question. Which is that, yes? At what point in history did humanity reach its peak of creativity? I believe that human progress ended at microwavable pizza. And I will defend <laughs> that point to the end. The year being? I don't know, it's been around my whole life. Um, so, <laughs> the next problem we get to in social media is that it creates a passive sort of follower culture. The first problematic trend that we get to in social media is the idea of slacktivism or clicktivism, which is the idea that we are doing something and generating a new solution to a world problem by clicking like on social media or doing whatever the new trend is, sharing this picture, hit share if you agree. Trust me, there has never been someone starving thinking, please God, I hope someone hits like. But unfortunately, social media lets, leads us to believe that this is the creative solution to our problems. And there's some pretty problematic examples of this. Does anyone remember Coney in 2012, where people clicked like and shared their views, supposedly, about what was going on? But unfortunately, Coney, the person who is a, a, a responsible for several egregious human rights offenses, is still at large in Africa. Another instance, do you remember hashtag bring back our girls where 300 young women were captured by the Boko Haram and social media lit up with a sea of empathy for about two weeks. The problem with this is now we've stopped the creative kinds of solutions Question. because, yes. If social media didn't exist, would Coney have been stopped and would the 300 girls have been returned? Here's my thing about this, though, is I think in a world before social media, people would have been acting a lot more because they can't just click like and feel like they've accomplished something. Now, I believe it's entirely well, it's, it's entirely well intended that people get on social media and click like for something that they enjoy, but unfortunately for too many people, it stops there. Once again, looking back to our use of the word threat, we're not condemning social media and we're not saying that the world's problems are new problems because of social media. But what we are saying, a certain threat to creativity exists when people believe that they can just click like and they've really interacted with something. The next thing we're going to hear is that we are limited in what we can say on social media. One, because Facebook and Twitter have certain algorithms that allow us to that censor the things that we say, but also there's this idea of kind of an echo chamber that takes place within social media, wherein people repeat the views that they believe in, and next thing you know, there's these trends of what is the acceptable idea, and if you go against that, the penalties can be quite severe. Right? For instance, if I were to share that same view on Twitter, some people would say I'm ugly, some people would say I'm unintelligent, and some people would just say my ideas come completely out of nowhere. And what bothers me about that is that two out of three of those things are completely untrue, and that bothers me. So what happens on social media is when someone hits dislike, which there isn't a button for, 
The problem is when they want to tell you that they dislike something, they usually have absolutely nothing to stop them from being so harsh to you. So what does this do to creative ideas, right? When it allows people to actually have a really negative drawback for the things that they say because people can go onto social media and be as harsh as they want behind the safety of their keyboard, this leads to a world where truly creative ideas that go against the grain and question the norms are become questioned to the extent that the people feel like they're no longer wanted in the online forum. So what have I told you today? I've begun with the idea that noise is what comes up in social media. Now our opponents will probably come up and give some pretty decent examples of people that have done really awesome things on social media. And if cat videos aren't involved in this, I'm really going to be disappointed because they're adorable. But what we would argue is that when it comes to true acts of high art on social media, that these sterling examples of creativity are but small buoys in a sea of banality because of all the noise that is created. Second, we have argued that social media can so often create a passive follower culture. We don't want you to recognize this threat so that you will go home and turn off your Twitter account or get off of Facebook forever. But what we would want to recommend is that creativity is what happens when you use what you see on social media and actually step forward and come up and generate new ideas. But because too many people are not willing to do that, we will contend that the threat exists and we will hold this true for the rest of the debate. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, before I begin my speech, I'd like to offer a few thank yous on behalf of Kate and myself. Uh, firstly, a huge thank you to the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues for organising this whole event, the LEAD Centre for agreeing to host this event, uh, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln for hosting the tour for a second year running. We hope you continue to do so. And in particular, the UNL Department of Communication Studies and the Centre for Civic Engagement for helping again to organise and arrange and support what we hope and hope you think is a truly fantastic and enjoyable debate. Also, thank you to our opponents, John and Adam. Um, you started off the debate wonderfully, and I'm sure that will continue. Um, a thank you to Carly Woods, who uh, I don't know where she is in the audience. I wish I could put a spotlight on her, but she has been the host organizing this entire thing, but also the entirety of Mining Kate's tour, which is a gargantuan task. We're going to 26 different stops in 16 states. Um, so truly, a massive thank you to you, Carly. And finally, a big thank you to all of you. Um, you've come out on this rather bitter and cold November evening. Hopefully you're having an enjoyable time and hopefully that will continue. And we're looking forward to hopefully chatting with some of you at the end of the debate. Now on to my speech. So ladies and gentlemen, I have come to the sad um, but inevitably true conclusion that I am not Beyonce. Uh, try hard as I might, I will never be a Beyonce. Um, that's been quite an upsetting realization to come to. But because of social media, I can enjoy Beyonce's acts of creativity. 
I can be creative and mimic the outfits that she posts on Instagram. Uh, I can sing along to say my name when I watch on YouTube. I can also attempt and ultimately probably fail um, at learning the single ladies dance. Um, and there are many ways that I can post my own acts of creativity that imitate and develop upon some of Beyonce's ideas. And there are so many reasons, not just Beyonce, but mainly um, that I think social media is such a wonderful force today. So I'm going to talk to you broadly about creativity, what we think creativity means and how we think about creativity throughout history. Um, and I'm going to talk to you specifically about creativity with regards to social media. But before I do that, I have quite a few pieces of rebuttal. And um, so firstly, we heard that, you know, creativity should change the way you read the world, you interpret everything. Um, but this is never true of Twitter. And well, firstly, chaps, uh, you've clearly not been reading my tweets because uh, they would really uh, change your perspective on a whole range of things, not just Beyonce. Um, but also, probably creativity is sometimes just about expressing yourself uh, and your thoughts and your feelings. And it's not always about wanting to change everything um, to do with the world. I think that's a bit of a big ask of all of the artists ever. I mean, I don't think many people, if anyone, um, always does that with their art. Um, I'm going to quibble with these ideas about originality later. Um, last, then this idea that social media makes us pancake people, spread thing, that we don't ever critically evaluate anything. This isn't a new concern. In Middlemarch in the 1860s, George Eliot wrote about the fact she felt her generation could no longer engage with ideas meaningfully in the way that Henry Fielding could 70 years ago. There is always a concern that we can't interact with everything because we can't, but social media allows me to interact with people across the world from different backgrounds in a way I never could without it. And of course you can critically evaluate things. You can watch a cat video and laugh. You can write a piece on how cat videos are actually a Marxist critique of modern society. You can try and create your own cat videos. The point is it's up to you, and social media gives all of you a much larger forum within which to be creative. Lastly, on slacktivism. Firstly, most people wouldn't be activists even if social media didn't exist. Most people will read a newspaper and read an article and oh, feel outraged and then do nothing about it. The thing is, sometimes social media allows us really creative ways to point out problems. Look at the Everyday Sexism Project in England. That's pointed out to the world that everyday sexism is something that most women face every day, countless occasions of it. And this was a unique way of presenting ideas that the mainstream media weren't talking about. They want to talk to you about echo chambers. I think Fox News is quite a large echo chamber that never really challenges its viewers' opinions. As a contrast, I point you to Tumblr, which has been an amazing creative outlet for the trans and queer communities that often don't get an outlet in mainstream media or mainstream art. But now onto my substantive. So creativity. It's about making something new or different or putting a twist on old things. But it's the act of doing or making something and in some way expressing yourself that is the most important. That's why we learn to play songs that other people have composed, that we dance routines someone else has choreographed. It's 
ultimately about expressing emotions, and often we all experience similar emotions. There are always dominant creative trends. Look at mods versus rockers in the 1960s, the rise of jazz in the 1920s, the rise of the novel as a dominant literary form in the late 1800s. Trends of creativity have always existed, regardless of social media. But moreover, creativity is always somewhat parasitic. They want to talk to you about new ideas. That's simply untrue. There are always limits on originality. Look at the fact that the piano has seven major notes, then different pitches of those notes. Look at the fact that, oddly, again, there are only seven plots that people see in novels. It's about changing how you deal with that plot. Often copying sparks really good things. English Renaissance court poetry, bear with me, this is relevant, um, changed poetry within the Western world. What they did is they took the Italian sonnets from Petrarch and put an English twist on the format and the content of that sonnet. Yes, they were copying. Whoso Lister Hunt is basically just a translation of one of Petrarch's poems. But ultimately, it was creative, it was new, and it did speak to current trends and emotions within the people reading that art form. Moreover, look at ekphrastic art. Ekphrastic art is an art form which takes something from a different medium. So you have paintings of Bible stories. You have Keats' ode to a Grecian urn that's an ode to a piece of pottery. Art always builds on art that has gone before. That's what social media does. You take a piece of someone else's art and you comment on it and you change it and you put your opinion and your spin on that. So on to creativity in social media. Generally, there are sort of two groups with regards to creativity. On the one hand, there's creative producers, so artists. On the other hand, there's creative consumers, so those in the audience of a show, for example. Generally, increased production methods are good because more people get to receive an art form. So the novel meant many more people could access literature much more cheaply than they could before. Similarly, music streaming means that you didn't have to pay extortionate rates for a CD. You could hopefully buy it off iTunes rather than download illegally, but there were different ways you could access art more easily. But social media does something more than that. Social media blurs the distinction between producer and consumer. You can consume, critique, and create your own art. You can reblog something someone else has done. You can repost it. You can edit a video and put your own spin in it, whether it's a mock-up of a video or whether it's you just singing the lyrics to Frozen and really feeling that you want to let it go. Whatever it is, you can make a GIF from a television show. So what's this do? It allows a much more interactive relationship. You can put your creativity to a wider audience, to people you wouldn't reach otherwise. They talk about people critiquing work. That's always true. The mainstream are never receptive to new ideas. But now if you live in a very closeted, conservative community where everyone would tell you to shut up that your ideas were unimportant, now you have the whole world who may listen to you. It's probably more likely you'll find people with similar interests who will encourage you. Case can talk to you more about that later. But moreover, your entire life becomes a creative event. You can choose which selfie you want to upload to Instagram, which filter you want to put on your pumpkin spice latte to express just how autumnal you are feeling. Your entire life becomes something that other people can access, but that you can alter how you wish. So if you are bullied in school, you can be confident online. If you are closeted in the real life, you can be open about your sexuality online. You can put your artwork up and find a receptive audience of people who will encourage you. Social media allows you to talk to more people and more people to talk to you. It is fantastic. 
and I'm incredibly proud to oppose. Thank you. I would just like to first quickly reiterate some of our thank yous to all of our wonderful sponsors, to all of our wonderful opponents, and for Adam. A special thank you I have to give out to Damon Pfister, Carly Woods, and Aaron Duncan for helping us prepare for the debate. They're wonderful mentors and helped us out a lot. And finally, of course, the Ian Thompson Forum. They've brought you such great people as Mikhail Gorbachev and Desmond Tutu, and now us to make jokes about cats. So <laughs> with that, we'll start on to the debate. So I think we're having a lovely debate here today. This ability to engage people to people in front of a live audience is allowing us to go really in depth and really understand what creativity means for us and what creativity means for social media. But I think if we had transferred this debate to social media, this may not have worked out the same. In fact, this is my summary of what our debate would have looked like on social media. Adam would have stood up and said, oh my God, can you believe what's happening to social media? Click to find out. And then we would have the rebuttal, these guys sound like Luddites, hashtag get off our digital long, hashtag thanks grandpa. <laughs> Not really getting the substantive deep debate that we are happy to get here because we're moving off of social media and into the realm of deep ideas rather than shallow ones. And that's really the thing Adam and I are here to talk to you about today, is this debate seems to be coming down to two issues in our mind. One is this idea of whether or not expression in any form is good, or what we would call shallow expression is what we really want. And the second is, does social media afford you this freedom that the opposition would tell you that it does. And we will contend that we are getting shallow creativity instead of good, meaningful, productive creativity. But second and more importantly, social media makes you less free to actually express yourself. So first though, you can see the biggest thing Adam and I think is happening today is they are giving you demonstrations of the shallow creativity that Facebook gives you at best. This idea to put the pumpkin spice latte online. And in the lieu of that, we're losing the ability to go more in depth into these issues. What this really demonstrates is that social media is not about expression. Social media is not about ideas. Social media is about attention. And it is the thing that gives us the most attention on social media that ultimately is going to be the thing that is most popular, not the most creative thing, not the most informative, not the most enlightening thing. The best way to look at this is if you went to YouTube and saw what the 10 most popular videos were, there are no TED Talks, there are no expressions of art, there is no great theater, there are Psy and Gangnam Style, Katy Perry and Justin Bieber. And while I love a good pop song as much as probably anyone on stage, I'm not gonna argue that that's the type of creativity that's really doing a service and being useful to all of us. Um, aside from this though, we also, they make this argument that all creativity as part of this is building off of each other and is this kind of parasitic element off of that. Well, I would have a couple things that I'd like to Question. say to that. Yes, absolutely. Prior to the evolution of social media, who decided what was good art? I think that good art, I see where you're probably leading the argument that this has been yeah. a kind of class privileged thing in the past. And I'm not arguing that 
uh, but I do believe that these great works of art were not just decided by the wealthy and the powerful. They may have helped fund those, but they've lived on in our memories because they were truly great things, and we all agree that they are great and important things. Whereas if when we get into this intention-speaking world, the interesting great ideas tend to go away. Walt Whitman's leaves of grass would become tweets of grass, and we would end up getting a very shallow understanding of what great American poetry could be. Um, but beyond this, they make this argument that all great creativity is parasitic. But what I would say is that the parasites here that are happening are the most shallow form of recreation. We're not recreating the great ideas, we're just singing the covers of Justin Bieber. Or instead of Yo-Yo Ma being famous for his style, he probably, in order to be successful on YouTube, would simply have to shake it off with his, viol with his cello. What you ultimately end up with is that social media is generating things for attention rather than creativity. And we think that is a big difference that ultimately delineates true creativity because we will follow the same patterns of attention again and again. We'll recreate the same types of covers. We'll keep posting videos of cats. We'll not be generating new things. We'll just generate the thing we know creates the most likes, gets us the most hits. But the second really important thing is they tell us this story that social media provides you the freedom to express yourself. But I would argue social media is, one of, is nowhere near as free as they would like to tell you. First and foremost, as Adam brought up earlier, Facebook, the most popular form of social media, is highly censoring. Well, I can log on to Facebook and hear great stories about um, Kim Kardashian's nudity, Sim, and you can see the pictures. They were on my newsfeed. I was quite surprised. But <laughs> at the same time, social media, that same Facebook network, will not allow a breastfeeding mother to show her child, nor will they allow the great pieces of art that have actually had nudity in them to be shown. These get flagged as offensive. In essence, Facebook directly removes the content that they don't like or they don't agree with. Similarly, the algorithm removes controversial content from your newsfeed. While Ferguson may have blown up on Twitter, it was almost non-present on Facebook. And the reason for that is Facebook is more interested in just making sure you hear the nice things your friends say than the controversial ones. It's this shallow expression. How are we going to generate creative solutions to some of the biggest problems facing our country today if we can't even read about them in the number one place we're turning to for information? Simply put, Facebook is more interested in you just being happy and you enjoying the things they have there and them making extra dollars because then you come back than they are about allowing you to be creative and allowing you to hear the issues that really matter and are really important to this country. The final thing I would just like to point out is they do is that one of the great things we're losing from social media is boredom. That's right, I'm actually going to advocate for boredom and it might explain the rest of my speech. Um, but what we see is that there are actually numerous studies that have told you, it is told us that it is only when we step away from all of the information, all of the clutter, all the noise that Adam talks to you about, that we actually become more creative, both inter alone and interpersonally. In fact, um, scientists at social scientists at the University of Utah in Kansas took a bunch of students into the woods and took away their smartphones. And while this may sound horrific, by the end. <laughs> 
By the end of this trip, the students were generating more creative answers to their assignments, talking about and discussing solutions to the world's problems, and generally engaging in the creative behavior that Adam and I think is most important. So at the end of the day here, I'm not saying that self-expression isn't important. Absolutely, I love social media in the fact that it does allow individuals to express ourselves, but it's denying us the important deep creativity that is essential to a democratic, developed, civil society. And it's only when we take at least some moments to step back and allow ourselves to discuss things in person, to have these deep, vibrant, meaningful debates, rather than one that's 144 characters at a time, that we're going to have the important, creative solutions that are absolutely necessary. And so with that, I simply say that absolutely, creativity is threatened by social media, and perhaps we should all just turn it off once in a while. Okay, so our affirmative team today stood up here and would like to convince you that before the invention of the internet and social media, all teenagers were in their bedroom composing symphonies. <laughs> or they were in Uganda fighting Joseph Kony. I mean, probably these are mutually exclusive enterprises, uh, but also probably quite implausible. Um, I mean, before social media, what was happening? Before social media, there was video games. Before video games, there was television. Before that, there was playing cards and chess and all of the th things that people did to procrastinate all of the way through history. Procrastination hasn't been invented in the 21st century. Let's be realistic about this. There's always been distractions. There's always been fads, fashions, and trends. And boredom hasn't gone away. I mean, you should go on my Facebook, right? Um, I mean, you know, I probably have a very eclectic group of friends, given I'm doing a doctorate in international relations, um, but that's still pretty boring. But then look at, let's look on balance, right? So prior to the invention of the microwave pizza, which our affirmative kindly pointed out as the pinnacle of human creative civilization, <laughs> um, slightly specific and bizarre moment in time, uh, before that, what was the world like? Uh, they couldn't tell me when microwave pizza was invented, but say like 50s, they had pizza and they had microwaves. I think it was probably invented then. What happened before that? Uh, fashion meant that everyone wore effectively the same clothes, right? You don't look to pictures of the 18th century and be like, ooh, all the women were wearing very different clothes. Everyone was wearing the same clothes. That's what fashion dictated. What books did we read? We read books written by dead white men. What music did we listen to? Music written by dead white men. This was what the high art that they want to talk about. Voices of women and voices of ethnic minorities or people who weren't seen by the elite as representing what they wanted high art to be were fundamentally shut out. This Question. is the high art that they want to talk about. Yeah. When social media still tends to feature those who either are privileged and white, or is owned by the people who are privileged and white, wouldn't you say it's really more our wonderful universities that are exposing us to this diversity of ideas than anything social media is offering us? 
Okay, on balance in terms of media, right, you either have a world in which you have Fox News and CNN and predominantly white middle class people telling you what things are in the world, or at least you have the opportunity to listen to people of diverse voices, right? You have the opportunity for people, for people who are not seen by the elite as having the art that they want to actually be listened to. So firstly, like some, some sort of rebuttal. So we've had this idea of like, you get less depth of debate on social media. Imagine if we had this debate on social media. I mean, yeah, but we're not. Um, and there's like, no one is suggesting that we should, because maybe some media serves one function and maybe some media serves another function. How many of you here are at this debate because you found out about it on social media? Right, I mean. <laughs> So, no one is saying that we should have the debate on Twitter, <laughs> but maybe what's good about Twitter and Facebook is that it will tell you that these debates are happening, and it means people who would never have otherwise got access to it are able to do so. They also said, well, it's also censored. Yeah, because like Fox News allows women breastfeeding on all of the time, right? Well, obviously nonsense. You've got to look at the actual comparative. Their fantasy of a world in which was free speech and all ethnic minorities and women got to speak equally prior to the terrible internet is obviously ridiculous. They're then saying, well, we're not solving the biggest problems of the century. Well, no, obviously not. Obama isn't holding the debate about healthcare on Twitter, right? But what Twitter can do is it can point you to articles, it can point you to people with different points of view who can tell you these things in more depth. So let's talk then about democratization, no thanks, and participation. So the affirmative want to tell you that before, before this, there was high art. What does this mean? So let's look at Renaissance Tuscany, which often people point to as like the high pinnacle of art. You had Michelangelo and Botticelli and all of these people. The problem is that what was good taste was determined exclusively by the Medici family. Literally no one else got to say what was good art. They were the ones that funded all of the artists, decided what they painted, decided where, where it was shown. This is the high art that they want to tell you about. What can you do now though? What is different? Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, Instagram. What this allows you to do is be your own curator of art. You can go out on the internet and find what appeals to you. Prior to this, you had to have the middleman, okay, in Renaissance Italy, the Medici family, telling you what was good art. This is democratized art in a way that never happened before. And why is this really important for creativity? Because the essence of creativity is inspiration. It's basically why all art prior to the Renaissance was religiously based art, because that's the inspiration they had. And there was no one in the 12th century being like, hmm, Impressionism, Cubism, that's where I'm gonna go. Because there was no inspiration for that. That's why all art is building upon previous art. What else has it allowed you to do? And just not just in terms of being exposed to different forms of art. It's also allowed you to participate in that. So you have things like Tumblr and Flickr, where amateur writers and amateur photographers can showcase their work alongside professionals and get critiques by professionals and critique professionals' work and engage with them in a way they wouldn't be able to do if they all, all they got to see was when they went to the art gallery that is close to them, which they might have to pay a fee to enter. This has allowed people who was never able to engage in art to do so in an enormous way that has enhanced creativity. It's also permitted collaboration, right? The number of people who meet on social media or who engage in art in a way they never did before social media is enormous. 
Moreover, collaboration has been essential towards the creation of some of the greatest creative art throughout history. Wordsworth and Coleridge, Lyrical Ballads, a, com a, a collaborative work that literally changed poetry. What you have now is Ed Sheeran and Pharrell Williams making sing. That's also that's very different, but it's also an examination of like collaborative work and how social media enables this. And last thing I want to talk about is anonymity and how anonymity in the internet has been absolutely essential for creative for creativity. So throughout history, so many artists have used anonymity in order to be able to put out their work. Why? Because one of the greatest blocks towards creativity is worry of being laughed at, worry of being shouted down, worry of being ridiculed and pilloried for your ideas if they're not thought as acceptable by the rich white men who control art. Yes? You speak of anonymity being really great, but when that anonymity has empowered some of the cyberbullying that shuts down discussion on the internet and actually drives people towards self-harm, how can you say that's a virtue we should uphold? Okay, bullying happened before and after the internet. Women's voices were shut out before and after the internet. The first women who tried to speak in the Oxford Union were th had things thrown at them and were shoved out of the door. It was seen as an abomination if women or slaves spoke in the Senate of Rome and Greece. There's always been bullying to both shut shutting people's voices out. What is different now is that there are ways to protect yourself from it, that that bullying is actually less, less problematic because it's not physical and there are ways that you can insert your community. Moreover, there are ways that you can bypass that and say, no, I will face down my bullies because you cannot force me out of this chamber. This chamber is mine as much as it is yours and my voice will be heard. That's what you get through the internet. So throughout history, you have people like George Eliot and Bronte who were forced to write under men's names in order to be published. Jonathan Swift and Mary Shelley forced to publish anonymously for what they thought the public would say of them. But the key is, they were only able to do this because they were middle class. They were able to access that anonymity. Now everyone can access that anonymity and put their work out there without fear of being criticised, without fear of being harried and pilloried, and without fear that they're going to be laughed at. This means that so many people who would never engage in art, who would never engage in a creative enterprise, have been able to do so through the internet. Incredibly proud to oppose. I'd like to continue the thank yous to everybody, and of course now we get into the rebuttals, so I'd just like to bring this debate to a conclusion and say once again thank you to everyone, and since enough thank yous have gone around, you're welcome. <laughs> so our opponents' arguments can be basically boiled down to a couple of arguments. That one, most of the problems we talk about in social media are just human nature, and they were around before and after social media, and that though we shouldn't blame social media for it. And then next, that social media allows people to kind of get across lines of privilege and share their ideas and things like that. Now, we give tone to the issue of creativity, to which our opponent says, well, we think creativity is just being able to express yourself. But here's the thing, we have no way to weigh and establish this kind of creativity and what kind of creativity is good and what kind of creativity is bad. And we get the example of someone trying to dance like Beyonce. And of course, when you hear it from two charming people, this looks like a great idea and everything they say sounds like Shakespeare. Hashtag I like British people, right? <laughs> but I will tell you, there is a video out there of me learning to dance the Teach Me How to Dougie that will make you question free speech forever. You will hate freedom. You will despise it. It's ugly. 
So what we see now is that there's no way for us to truly establish what is great creativity, what is good creativity, because all we really get to do, because we're limited in the medium that is social media, is to click like and then just simply move on and more importantly and more dramatically, forget about it. And so we bring up this idea of pancake people, which talks about the idea of democratization. And yes, your view gets out there, your creation gets out there, your art gets out there. But unfortunately, a lot of people can just scroll past it and ignore you. So this idea of democratization doesn't really apply to social media that well. And then, of course, they try to say that the problems we talk about, like echo chambers and like privilege and censorship, existed before social media. Of course they did. But on social media, it's worse. And they say that you can answer cyberbullying by on social media saying, no, I don't like this, but unfortunately, people are silenced and people don't have someone around to reinforce them after a cyberbully tells them things that are ab absolutely terrible. For instance, I like people, and I like to hear what people have to say about me. How bad am I going to feel when I get home tonight and I hear some people go, great debate tonight, and then I see someone else go, this absolutely horrendous person with a very strange goatee and three-piece suit should just shut up. I'm sorry, at, at John Carter 23, I won't. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are no filters on social media that stop human harshness, right? The problems of the world do not predate social media. We can concede that, but the social media augments and amplifies a whole lot of them in a way that sometimes makes social media a threat to human creativity. Which brings us back to the framing of this debate. We are not here today to say that creativity is dead and put social media on trial. But what we are saying is there is a threat you need to recognize. So you can do all the wonderful things that our opponents have brought up in this debate. You can dance to Beyonce all day, better you than me, trust me, right? But at the same time, you have to allow the recognition of the threat to exist. And you can recognize that threat every time you hit like instead of really expressing empathy and really thinking of what you can do to make the world better. You can recognize the threat every time you simply share something that someone else created without putting your own unique spin on it, which I would love to see. You can think about the threat next time. That's what we're saying. We're not here to condemn social media. It's a great way for me to pretend that I have more friends than I really do. But what we are saying is that you need to recognize the threats that lie to human creativity. Next, we get the argument from our opponent that says, um, we were able to listen to all these other voices and privilege was a big problem before social media and that social media allows you to question it. But here's what we tell you. We show you that social media can often re-entrench these issues of privilege when there's a Facebook censorship algorithm. And then they say, well, the same thing happens on Fox News. Let's not look at good media by comparing it to Fox News. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if I thought Fox News was our standard of measurement, I would pretend I'm Bill O'Reilly, get really angry, and say nothing but fallacies. It's not good to say that social media is great because it's somehow a little bit better than Fox News. But finally, we get... Sorry, Mr. O'Reilly. Love you, man. Um, <laughs> 
So we finally get to this conclusion that you've seen a lot of great things about social media that social media can do, but we also recognize there's some very nasty trends that we must recognize. And these do present threats to human creativity. Now here's the thing, I don't tell you that there is a threat so that you can condemn it. I tell you that there is a threat so that you can go out and do some of the better things that make social media a better place. Be kinder to one another in the way you evaluate stuff. If you like something, tell somebody why and affirm them. Don't just click like because that's lazy and nobody does it when I post things. <laughs> Seriously, no one. And what you should do is recognize the threat that is there and recognize that the threat to so the creativity that comes from social media is something we can do something about and that's why we're talking about it this evening. Thank you all very much. Ladies and gentlemen, lots of people have privilege. Most of us in this room have privilege. The four of us on this stage have more privilege than you because our voices are louder, because of the microphones, and because we're given the time to speak our thoughts on this issue. I mean, you can boo and you can hiss, hopefully you'll applaud more, and you can engage. But for anyone not in this room, they can't engage with these ideas. But they can, because this debate is being broadcast live. They can engage with it online for too long those deciding what good art was and the things we should talk about and that we should find entertaining and pleasurable were just the elites. What social media does is it allows anyone to have their say. It allows anyone to express themselves to a much wider influence and potentially a um, wider audience and potentially influence more people than before. You can engage creatively with more things. You can creatively receive and listen to and watch more things. They want to make this debate just about threats and just about criticism. Threats have always existed. Criticism has always existed. William Blake died penniless despite being arguably one of the best poets and artists ever. There has always been negativity. There has to be a higher bar for judging today's debate than just sometimes someone can be a bad person. Because often people can be pretty great. And I think actually social media allows the best of things rather than the worst of things. So in my speech, I talked to you about two things. Firstly, creativity, and then about social media and the world. So there are three claims from Verbative on creativity. Firstly, to be creative, you must have new ideas. The thing is, we pointed out to you and them that all ideas are parasitic. And actually, lots of good ideas are collaborative. Note there was no response to that because it's true. Secondly, they say, oh, there are shallow ideas and shallow creativity. Who is to say what acts of creativity are or are not shallow? Why is me Instagramming my fabulous outfit not worthy self-expression? Why is that not something that if I find it meaningful, if I find clothing and images, the way I express myself and my opinions, why is that not worthy? 
You can engage with people on different fronts than you could before. They say to you that there are no deep, there are no new ideas. That's simply untrue. Social media allows a platform for people who didn't have it before. Look at the Arctic Monkeys, arguably the most influential band to come out of the UK this century. They were discovered on social media. They became popular on social media. I'm going to bet none of you listened to Korean music ever before Gangnam Style. You do access new and different ideas that you simply wouldn't always. But the thing is, decisions about taste are always political. It is always people in power who decide who to sign to their record label, what books to publish, what films to put on television. That's not true with social media. Anyone can put their artwork up there and anyone can engage with it and riff upon that artwork and do new and exciting things. That's surely a benefit and creates more creativity rather than less because there's less of a barrier into accessing creative acts. Now onto social media and the world. They'll tell you that different views are silent. There are no filters, that you just get insults and then you stop expressing. The thing is, that's true already. If you get a bad review and you're a sensitive author, you're probably never going to publish again. That's not different with social media. But what you can do is you can access new audiences. You can have a more collaborative process. But moreover, as Kate told you and didn't get a response, anonymity can be useful. Female authors in the 19th century use a nom de plume because they knew if they published as a woman, they wouldn't be listened to. Similarly, if you're a teenager in your bedroom somewhere and you don't want to come out as trans or you don't want your artwork to be put up online, this gives you a way to express your personality, to make your life creative online in a way that can be helpful. And you can filter it. You can block messages from people you don't know. And for all the threats, for all the negativity, because you're reaching more people, it is more likely you will also get a positive outcome. They tell you finally that politics is harmed, that there is slacktivism. We tell you you can find creative solutions to problems you couldn't otherwise. Look at the way that the Obama's 2008 campaign utilised social media and got grassroots activism involved in a way that wasn't done before in politics. No, you don't hear things about politics on Facebook, but you also probably don't go to Facebook for politics. You might go to Tumblr, you might go to Twitter. Ultimately, different areas of social media are used for different things. But because cat videos are funny, because you can access media from different people, because I would love to see you attempting to doggy, and I do think that is something that has made the world a better place, I urge you to oppose this motion. Thank you. Well, I think our last thank you tonight should be to our wonderful four debaters tonight who did such an excellent job. The great thinker Aristotle was fond of saying that you can judge a society, its future, the values it has, and its progress by the eloquence of its citizens. And I think tonight you made us feel all a little bit better about the future of the United States and the future of the United Kingdom. So thank you for that.
The affirmative team, you did a wonderful job with some creative arguments tonight, and I want to say, despite what they're saying on Twitter, I thought you guys were wonderful. <laughs> and to the negative team, some equally great and creative arguments, and I share and sympathize with you. I too have realized that I will not be Beyonce, so thank you for that. Uh, at this time, if you have questions, ushers will be circulating if you're in the live audience with white cards and you can write them and then just give them back to your usher and they will bring them up to me. If you're following us live on the live stream, please tweet in using the hashtag IanThompsonForum. We have people reading those questions and they will bring them down as well. While we wait for the questions to come to the front of the room, it is now to the all-important process of voting. Well, we have a pretty large audience tonight, so we will uh, forego the normal tradition of each audience member offering an oral critique. And instead, use the far more expedient but much less precise system of simple applause and enthusiasm. So tonight, if you find the team that you debated for first, or like the most, please show your hearty applause and your hearty enthusiasm by clapping your hands and stomping your feet. All right, on to the voting. If you would like to vote for the affirmative team representing Nebraska, please have your applause now. Thank you, thank you. Excellent, wonderful. And you would like to show your support for our visitors from Great Britain, please have your applause. We're going to try this one more time, keeping in mind that the British team told me they really liked Wisconsin before coming here. <laughs> nice! Go Big Red! <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you for your votes tonight. Uh, we'll now move on to the questions portion of the debate evening. So please get those questions in. Uh, to start us off, I do have a couple of questions that have been submitted to us from some students in the Ian Thompson Lecture Series and Scholar Series. Uh, the first question they had for both teams was how do you measure creativity? We're going to debate about it. How should we measure and think about it? Why don't we start with the affirmative team since you're so caught up on this notion? I think we really decided that we had to make some difference between just creativity and expression. So we were defining creativity really as these big important new ideas that lead to advancements and are useful and enlightening and these types of things. And while that certainly opens us up to criticisms of elitism, those types of ideas are just necessary for the advancement and evolution of a democratic society and so we wanted to really push on those types of issues as being the important ones here tonight. I just think that defining creativity in terms of the big idea really misses the entire of the creative process. Like Marx and John Stuart Mill didn't write their books a propos of nothing, right? They had people that they spoke to about their ideas that influenced them. The biggest influence on John Stuart Mill was actually his wife and who he attributed loads of his books to because he said that it was her ideas being voiced through him. Um, and that is the creative process in essence. It isn't individual people, it's a collaborative effort, and we all learn off each other. Thank you for those answers. 
Uh, I'll give this question to the negative team first. Uh, how, what do we consider a social process? We've talked a lot tonight about social media, but is it really social simply to engage online? So I think that's an interesting question. I think a lot of people are worried about the fact that we talk on Facebook and we don't talk in real life. And I think there are different kinds of social um, processes and different kinds of conversations. So I think, for example, on Tumblr, you might have a conversation about Doctor Who uh, or Parks and Recreation or whatever your particular um, favorite television program is. And you might have conversations about feminism or about political activism and sort of very specific issues that you source out a community of online. But I think, of course, you do need face-to-face, in-person communication. And I don't think that it's one is replacing the other. I think they're both supplementing and increasing the kinds of conversations that we're having. Excellent, excellent. I would define a social process as something that really encourages and spurs new human interaction. Um, with that, while I love being social with people who I otherwise cannot see on social media, um, I love the face-to-face -face interaction with people, and I just think there's so much of that that you lose in social media. Now, keep in mind, we were told which sides we were, we, we were allowed to pick, so there are a lot of things I love about social media that I can't necessarily talk about with the side I was given. But in social media, I think that you lose a little bit of the reaction that people get. If you say something and see someone's eyes light up, if you say something and you see someone's face just contort with confusion or disdain, or sometimes when you just see someone just taken their breath away by how devastatingly handsome I am, <laughs> you lose all of that in social media. Um, where I think there's an element of the social that comes in face-to-face -face interaction that we don't get in the world of social media. All right, wonderful answers. Well, I've got a question, couple of questions here. Uh, this first one comes to us via Twitter from at Kate17, and she asked the two teams, how do I become a debater? Well, um, almost if it's if at Kate17, still in high school, almost every high school um, involved has a debate team, and finding one involved in your community is definitely an option. And in college, many of your colleges and universities have the team. If you just use the internet and search, you will find those opportunities are available. <laughs> now, now, now. There's a big difference between using the internet and using social media. Google is far more useful than Twitter. Um, but that it will, you will find the opportunities, it's, and I would encourage you to do so. One of the greatest things I ever did in high school was join my speech and debate team. It's changed my life, it's made my career, and I would encourage anyone who's interested to seek it out and find it. It's really one of the best things you can do. And if, uh, if at Kate 17 happens to be a UNL student and wants to join, come by fourth floor of Old Father Hall, we'll make you feel right at home. <laughs> Kate, I just suggest you start arguing with your parents on literally everything. Uh, our next question comes to us via pen and paper. Uh, do you believe creativity can be bought on social media, therefore threatening it? Because you can literally buy followers on Twitter, not because you're creative, but because you have money. Um, so yeah, I think that is one of the problems um, with social media is often the transparency. So I um, follow a lot of blogs 
um, and I really like to see what bloggers are doing and the kind of things they're doing with their lives. Um, but there's an increasing problem that companies know this is a new way to advertise to people. And so we'll send uh, bloggers things for free and they will then get showcased on their blogs or their vlogs, their video um, blogs, and you won't be told and that those things have been bought. So I think that can be a problem, but obviously, barring the cost of a computer and internet, which most people, at least in this society, have access to, it's free to put stuff online, and it is free to be creative. So while the success of your creativity may be affected by money, though I'd argue if it's, if it's good enough that people like it, it'll hopefully find a wider audience. Um, you can do it, but yes, money does change it. But I also just think that this is a comparative, right? Were it not for social media, these companies would be buying adverts in newspapers or buying adverts on TVs. What you at least have on social media is a countercurrent to that, is people who are, don't have the financial resources to go on TV or who, to get adverts in newspapers, but do have the ability to post online. So on balance, it's better with social media. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, I'll direct this question to the affirmative side. Uh, it comes to us via Twitter from at Garrett Swanson 9. And he asks, would a better question be that we change the purpose of social media and how can we incentivize people to use it for creativity? I would absolutely agree that with this. I mean, and there's a couple big reasons this is true. I think the first is looking to those social media platforms that are more free and more open. So not the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world, but rather the ones that give you the open realm of expression, the less censorship, these types of options. I think the other option is to really get the potential benefits that our opponents tell us about, more people would actually need to use social media. Less than 19% of this country is on Twitter. Um, um, less than a quarter of the world is on social media. It's just not a big enough, serious enough venue to be doing the kind of great collaborative work that it could do or doing the great informative work that it could do. So without these kinds of changes that allow kind of freedom of access holistically, including to what you post, and more ease of access to a greater potential of the population, it's just not going to provide kind of the benefits that it could. I also think it could just be a, a series of individual decisions to just be more cognizant of it. I mean, they rewrote Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, to a new edition that's set in the, middle in the digital age for a reason, and so that we could be cognizant of the things that we're doing on social media. Try to take at least a couple of your posts a day and encourage somebody who you think is really doing something creative as opposed to um, hitting like on the weird and wonderful stories that you find every day, right? I think these kinds of decisions, these actions that you can choose to do personally can make social media a much more creative place. Um, I think it's bizarre when you say that only a quarter of the world are on social media and that this isn't a big enough audience to participate. That's surely a bigger audience than has ever existed, ever. Moreover, there's all of this negativity about how young people use social media. I can say that we've now been traveling around America for the last eight weeks, and we have been so impressed by how knowledgeable young people are, both at college and at high school, and how so much of their knowledge is gained through social media, from talking to people in different countries and figuring out how things work in different parts of the world, and they're just more knowledgeable about things that are happening on the other side of the world than any generation has ever been before them. Uh, a question for the negative team from the UK. 
Uh, and this question writer asks, do you think governments should ever censor social media or control what it is used for? Broadly, I'd say no. Um, I think you do have a right to express yourself, and I think there are huge problems um, when governments start to censor um, social media. Obviously, there's a difference in censoring it between things that are already illegal. So if you're breaking the law by violating someone's privacy or through hate speech, that is something I think they should censor because it's a medium like any other. But because it is a medium like any other, I don't think there should be more censorship of it because I think it does allow more people a voice, even if the voice is only to be lol cats. Um, that is a voice that could be valuable and could be used for good or evil, but it's up to you. And I don't think it's the government's place to decide beyond the laws that already exist what you say. As a caveat to that, it really just depends on what government you're talking about. Um, because different political situations require different things. And in general, you can have a situation in the US where you need very, very limited censorship. But maybe people who are posting rape threats should be prosecuted for that. Um, but in different circumstances, media has been used for terrible things. So like Rwanda, the genocide, was often motivated hugely by the radio system. Um, so if social media were being used in that kind of a way, then obviously that would necessitate censorship. So it has to adapt to the political context that you're in. Uh, I'll direct this, team, this question towards the affirmative team from Nebraska. Uh, and this uh, tweet actually comes from, from the UK. So we have, you have some great fans all around the world supporting you. Uh, this person asks you to expand on when you talk about cyberbullying and ask, uh, what can we do to stop cyberbullying? And do you think it is a, a large and significant threat to social media? I think the issue of cyberbullying lays out in, in an interesting way. I'm not going to contend that bullying didn't exist before social media because we all know that that is untrue. But the problem with social media is that the same anonymity that we have talked about leads to this kind of environment where I can say whatever I want to somebody, especially if I'm on one of those forums where my real name and identity aren't shown to them. And I can say it with absolute impunity. I can be exceptionally harsh in my criticism. There are people who are wonderfully friendly and nice in person and then get on social media and say some of the most spiteful, venomous things you will ever see because they're doing it behind a keyboard without actually looking in the face of the person they're talking to. So I think a way we could answer cyberbullying is just always trying to put a positive tint on the things that we are saying. Right? Go back to the old rule of don't criticize, condemn, or complain unless you think it is absolutely necessary. Don't try to get a burn on somebody just because you think it's going to get a laugh on social media because those people do indeed have feelings. I think it's a general attitude of just say whatever you want and get the best laugh that leads to a little bit of cyberbullying. Just as an addition to that, and I agree with like, everything that was said there, I think actually a lot of cyberbullying and a lot of the way that it manifests is actually a backlash to the democratization that has happened in social media. So you'll notice that the people who are being cyberbullied are very frequently women who are speaking out. And they then get rape threats from men who are angry that women are now allowed a voice or ethnic minorities or trans people who are speaking out and having people listen to them. And you have people who are bigoted, who use the platform social media to try and 
bring down that person and contest the democratization that's happened. But you get this with any kind of progressive move. When people, when women got the vote, there was backlash. When African Americans got the vote, there was backlash. There is always backlash when an underprivileged group gains some of the privileges of the majority. And that's something that you just have to contend with and you have to deal with with any progressive social change. A question for the British team. Uh, what can take the place of good editors and reliable sources on social media that would help us promote and characterize things like good journalism? And they offer the example of the wonderful British publication, The Economist. So how can we create those type of editors and those types of good pieces of journalism on social media? So it's, I think it's different. Um, so I think when you're posting something on social media, you're not posting it in the same informative, um, assumed knowledgeable stance as someone writing for The Economist. I mean, you might assume you know everything, but probably you don't. But I think that's where the kind of peer-to-peer -peer collaborative process can be really helpful. Um, so the internet can also point out when you have said something that's a bit extreme or you've made conclusions um, that perhaps can't actually be drawn from the evidence that exists. So for example, Wikipedia. You know, everyone says, oh, Wikipedia has bad sources and isn't the most informed and always factually accurate. And sometimes that's true. But because so many people contribute to Wikipedia, actually the broad majority of most pages on Wikipedia are accurate and do have lots of information and do have sources that do supplement them. So peer-to-peer -peer editing um, and collaboration can work, but obviously it is an imperfect process. But I think as long as we don't assume that anything on the internet is, per is perfect and we know that fallibility is a thing, then I don't think it's a huge problem because, as with anything, you need to go to more than one source. You should never just assume something is true because someone says it is. Also, The Economist has a page where it publishes letters and apologies for things that it said in the last week's edition that was inaccurate. But there's a week's delay in correcting that. Um, and most people don't read that page. Whereas I've, I post something that's factually inaccurate on my Facebook or my Twitter, other people will come and tell me that instant. I'll get a post later that day being like, what you said is wrong, or what you said is unnuanced, and you need to read this article, or engage with this person, and you'll come to a better idea. So actually, the corrective process is a lot quicker, um, and a lot, again, a lot more democratized than you actually get with things like The Economist. And I would just like to add, if you want to read more on this corrective great news function of it, my advisor Damon Fister just wrote a really good book about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and certainly you'll be getting some extra credit for that. <laughs> this question is for either of the teams and comes to us via Twitter. Uh, are you concerned about the possible mental effects of social media? There have been studies showing that using it releases chemicals like dopamine in the brain and that it may promote things like addiction. I have absolutely zero trouble believing that addictive behavior can come from social media. I think it's, I think it's often exaggerated how much it could be happening, but I know people who are seriously addicted to social media. I also think that social media can have some pretty devastating effects on your health just because of some of the things that people say, especially your mental health. For instance, every few months I am heartbroken and depressed because someone has told me that Bill Cosby is dead. And then it turns out to be a hoax. 
and then I feel good, only to know that there will, this hoax will come around and I will be depressed again. But to take a more serious note on the question, I think we do need to pay a little attention as to the way like maybe behaviors change because of social media. Especially when you go into Starbucks and you see a group of people sitting around in a circle who are not at all interacting with each other and all face down in a phone. And then occasionally one of them will look up and say something and they will all laugh and you don't get it. It's entirely out of context. I think it changes the way we interact with one another, which as we know is going to have a big effect on our mental and social health if we, if we allow it to go completely unchecked. I'm not saying the sky is falling. I mean, I just think that most people do use social media quite responsibly. And the kind of people that you're talking about, if they weren't addicted to social media, they would be addicted to something else, right? Teenagers are not, weren't before social media, weren't these like gregarious, self-confident individuals all painting, you know, the, the Venus de Milo, right? Um, they were addicted to video games, they were addicted to TV, they were addicted to music, they were addicted to whatever was the fad at that particular point. I think the benefit, at least with social media, is the, that addiction includes interaction with other human beings, whereas so many of these previous fads didn't. So on balance, these teenagers who either way are gonna be in their bedroom on their own doing something, are at least now talking to someone else. <laughs> this, this Playing is video games. <laughs> this is public television, Kate. Uh, a, a question for the British team here uh, from Twitter. Social media gives everyone a chance to be heard. But what about those without accents? Access, excuse me, not accents. Your accents are wonderful. <laughs> what about those without access? Isn't their silence magnified by their lack of ability to access social media? I don't think so. I think generally social media is something that people um, can access uh, at a much cheaper cost than any kind of other way of sort of getting your voice heard apart from just standing up and shouting on a street corner. But you get some funny looks if you did that and you know, other problems there. Um, but just because more people are being heard, I don't think it means that the people who aren't being heard are heard less. Um, obviously it's a problem that not everyone can access social media, but I don't think that's a problem that's new or unique to social media. I would like to add, I don't think that it makes people heard less. I think the danger lies instead in us thinking we've heard from more people than we actually have. We tell these stories. We tell these stories that social media opens up the world, but yet is 21% of America, you know, a very limited class. And yes, that is a lot of people, but it's not the country has spoken, which is the story that we tell. And so I think it's in many ways we can counteract that kind of negative element by being more accurate with who the internet represents. I'm not saying that those extra voices are good, we just should maybe back away from the narrative of the internet tells us everyone's voice. But the internet does tell us a specific group of people's voices, young people, right? So the 21% you're talking about aren't a gender or a class or a racial divide. They are an age divide and it's young people's voices. And the reason this is so important in America is precisely because young people don't vote. Young people are less politically engaged. They don't read the newspapers in the same way. 
but social media actually gives an outlet for young people's voices in a way that you don't otherwise have in the political sphere. So even if it's 21%, that's the 21% we really, really need to be hearing from. Wonderful, thank you. Our final question of tonight comes to us from Twitter and is for the affirmative team. Why would most people only follow those sources that reinforce their bias? Why did you make this argument? It's a basic thing that we do in the use of media in general, but Facebook and Twitter allow us to do it a little bit more. It's the idea of the confirmation bias. We look to ideas, we look to media, we look to articles, books, movies that re-entrench the sort of things that we already believe. I didn't make the argument, theorists have made it before me. I was just applying it to social media. This idea that usually we get on groups on Facebook that follow views that are quite like our own. Also that we will comment on threads that we kind of agree with. And when you see 15 people stating arguments in agreement, every now and then someone will start the dogfight and will say something that is somewhat contrary. But a lot of the time people are afraid to do that because of the way that they get treated. So it's very easy to get on Facebook and get on the groups that simply back up the ideas that you have or to share the articles that have the ideas that you have. And if something's just a little bit too real, and I will admit I've done it, it's easy to just scroll past it if it's a little too difficult for you to understand, if it challenges your worldview too much. The problem with Twitter and Facebook is not necessarily the, an issue with people being able to post, but it's this ability that people can just only look at the things that interest them only get mad if they want to, only question things if they feel like it, but if they don't, they can simply just confirm what they have already thought, going to groups that follow the things that they like, and posting arguments and articles that are supportive of the things that they like, and not really questioning things because they get a lot of likes. I would also just like to, well, you can applaud Adam if you like. <laughs> I won't stop there. But it's better than likes, let me tell you. I love it. <laughs> I would also just like to remind you know, the, the other side of that, which is Facebook actually reinforces this on its own with its algorithms. It actually actively dissuades the content that it thinks will offend you because it wants you to come back. And that's something we as users of Facebook can speak out against and try to speak towards. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how can we make social media better demand our social media let us hear more voices. It's something that we as the consumers of this social media could and should do. And it's one of the things hopefully we all do as we realize that hearing those voices, as we all agree, hearing more voices is good. So we can try to open up our social media both through what we share and asking them to let us share it to make sure that that happens. So, if I could just add one thing, I think what you have said is absolutely true, and I think we do create echo chambers, and there are the options um, to hear different perspectives, but ultimately a lot of people do not choose them. But, if you would like to hear a different social media-led perspective on your own country, Kate and I have been writing a blog about our travels and our take on America. It is called thequietenglishwomen.wordpress.com. I would encourage you to check it out. That is a shameless plug, but I've got an audience and I'm going to do it.
Well, this concludes this evening's debate, and we invite you to stay in the lobby and to meet today's debaters. I want to say one final thank you, and that is to our entire audience online and off. There is a prevailing sentiment that people will no longer attend public debates, that people aren't interested in thoughtful discussion, and that people aren't engaged in the issues of today. And I want to thank all of you for proving that we still have some hope, and that is not the case. Thank you. Thank you.